The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Nastenka's history. Nastenka then told her story. When she was a girl, her mother and father died, and she was given to the care of her grandmother. At fifteen, she got into some mischief, after which her blind grandmother pinned Nastenka's dress to hers and said she would sit there for the rest of their lives if she did not become a better girl. Once, Nastenka tried to fool her grandmother and have the servant Fiocla sit there in her place, but otherwise she had sat like that for two years. It seemed that her grandmother was once rich, since she was always referring to better days. But living on only her grandmother's pension, Nastenka and she were poor, and needed the added income of renting the upper story of their house to a lodger. The first lodger was a blind, lame, dried-up little old man who died. A new lodger came, and Nastenka's grandmother asked meaningfully whether he was young or old, and whether he was pleasant-looking. Nastenka was confused as to why she would ask such a thing, but she confessed that he was young and that he was good-looking. One day, when the lodger came in to see them, Nastenka's grandmother asked her to fetch something from her bedroom. Nastenka jumped up at once, forgetting she was pinned to her grandmother's dress. Miserably ashamed for the lodger to know about her circumstances, Nastenka blushed and stood as though she had been shot. Seeing her embarrassment, he bowed and went out of the room. For weeks, the lodger never returned, but only sent books through Fiocla for Nastenka to read to her grandmother. Grandmother asked whether they were moral books or stories of men who seduce virtuous girls, carry them away, and leave them to perish pitifully. When she was persuaded that Nastenka would not learn evil from them and that there was no love letter hidden away in the binding, she allowed Nastenka to read them to her. One day, Nastenka met the lodger on the stairs, and he asked her whether she was bored sitting all day like that with her grandmother, and whether she had any friends. He invited her to go to the theater without her grandmother knowing it, but Nastenka refused to deceive her. After dinner, he came to her grandmother to invite them both to the opera for a performance of The Barber of Seville. They got ready at once and set off for the theater. Nastenka, grateful to her grandmother for being such a kind old soul. That night, she went to bed feverishly happy and raving about the barber of Seville. Nastenka expected the lodger to come and see them more often, but instead he came only about once a month, and only to invite them both to the theater. Nastenka became restless and nearly ill, and whenever she encountered him on the stairs, all the blood rushed to her head, and she became red as a cherry. Then, one day in May, the lodger came to tell them that he was returning to Moscow. That night, Nastenka packed her belongings and went to his room with a violently beating heart, sat down beside his bed, and hid her face in her hands as she let out a flood of tears. He looked at her with an expression of sadness and understanding that tore her heart, and he told her he was a poor man in no condition to marry. 
Nastenka said she could no longer go on living with grandmother, and that she could not live without him, terrified of his refusal. After a few minutes of silence, he vowed to her that, if, in a year's time, he was in a position to marry, he would come back for her. He swore to be loyal to her, said he could be happy only with her, but said that since he didn't know what would happen, he knew he could not bind her to any promise. When our narrator encountered Nastenka, it had been a year, and the lodger had returned to Petersburg, but not to her. They had agreed to meet on that embankment, yet he did not come. Our narrator offered her admirably heartfelt encouragement, given that he had clearly broken his vow and fallen in love. He said that perhaps the lodger hadn't really come, and when Nastenka insisted he had, offered to go to him in her name. He then declared that she must write the lodger a letter, and reassured her that she had every right to do something so forward, given his promise to her. He allowed himself only the passing comment that she must do all that unless she wanted to free him from his promise. But when she interrupted to fervidly discuss the letter, he said no more. He offered her guidance, telling her what the letter must say, at the conclusion of which Nastenka said that was exactly what she had been thinking, and produced a letter written long before, all ready and sealed up. A reminiscence then floated through his mind, Rosina, and the two nostalgically hummed a melody from the Barber of Seville. They agreed to meet the next day, and the sound of Nastenka's voice rang in his ears as they parted. The next of my posts was called The Barber of Seville. When I read Notre Dame de Paris with this group, at one point I lamented that while Hugo's contemporary audience could understand and gain insight from his references to classic art, I could not. What I could do, however, is use his references as a prompt to educate myself. I discovered fascinating works of art in the process. When, in this story, I came upon a reference to the Barber of Seville, I felt similarly ignorant and deprived. I've had little exposure to opera, and this was one I was entirely unfamiliar with. I wanted to understand the reference for two reasons. First, I felt sure the plot of the opera would in some way relate to the plot of the story. And second, and more important, I wanted to know exactly what Nastenka felt on that fateful night at the theater. So I started reading about and exploring various productions of The Barber of Seville. It was not difficult to discover the connection of the plot. It tells the story of a young woman named Rosina, who is held captive by her ward, and who falls in love with a man she believes to be a young student named Lindoro. At one point in the story, Rosina gives a letter to Figaro, the barber of Seville, and essentially the town busybody, to deliver to Lindoro. She eventually escapes the clutches of her ward and marries her lover, who, it turns out, is actually a count in disguise. So, both tell the story of an attempt to escape captivity for love, and both include a middleman's delivery of a letter— that is why our narrator and Nastenka nostalgically hummed the melody Rosina 
when Nastenka gave him the letter to deliver to the lodger. Feeling what Nastenka felt was more difficult for me. I have a steep learning curve ahead of me when it comes to opera, and I found much of this one perplexing and even a little bizarre. But I experienced a single moment that atoned and more than atoned for all the confusion. It is the melody sung by the Count to Rosina from beneath her balcony when he declares his love. With just the opening bars, I was brought to tears. I think it is breathtakingly beautiful, and I'll share it with you in the Facebook group. In the process of exploring this opera, I found myself already on the road to being an opera snob. The Barber of Seville is a comedy, but I saw productions that played the comedy so over the top that to me it undermined the beauty of the music. To me, it seemed impossible that Rossini could have written such beautiful music to accompany what I found to be vulgar, slapstick humor. Perhaps I was also experiencing PTSD from the performance of Cyrano de Bergerac that I saw on Broadway, starring Jennifer Garner and Kevin Kline. That play, too, has humor. But when the audience laughed all the way through the balcony scene, I wanted to curl up in a ball and die. I will link to two productions in the Facebook group, the one I found to contain offensive goofball humor and the one that I watched from start to finish. But most important, I will link to my favorite rendition of Se Il Mio Nome, Lindoro's song to Rosina that so stirred me. I was listening to it as I wrote this, and it gives me such an ache in my heart. I want to add one aside as a postscript because of its connection to the value of literature. I said earlier that Lindoro's melody atoned and more than atoned for the silliness of the rest of the play. That phrase came from my subconscious, but I knew immediately it was something I had read. So I googled it. It turns out it's from a line spoken by Crocker Harris in one of my favorite plays, The Browning Version. He says that one success as a schoolteacher can atone and more than atone for all your failures. I love that play. And I love that it has helped stock my brain with eloquence that I can call upon when I need it. You'll find those links to the Barber of Seville performances in the Facebook group or in the email I send you. But meanwhile, here's a little badly recorded preview of Se Il Mio Nome. The next of my posts was called Nastenka. I want to talk about and to do justice to darling, lovable Nastenka. Sometimes I discover that other writers have expressed what I wish to express better than I can myself. Writers like Konstantin Michulski, in his biography, 
Dostoevsky, His Life and Work. Macholsky begins his raptures about Nastenka by saying, quote, Nastenka is the embodiment of life and youth. She is full of genial cunning, graceful vigor, naive coquettishness, unquote. When our narrator pours out his heart and confesses all his shyness with women upon meeting her for the very first time, Nastenka reassures him with guileless sweetness that women like timidity and that she likes it too. When, in rhapsodic, romantic terms, he tells her of his loneliness and his longing for just two kind words from some lady, she laughs her characteristic laugh, one that contains not a trace of derisiveness, but only unrepressed delight, and she encourages him that all he would need to do is to ask for them. She warns him with naive kindness not to fall in love with her, offering her hand in heartfelt friendship. It is no wonder that our dreamer breaks the promise he was probably never in any position to make. Macholsky goes on to say, quote, She is openly unaffected and astute. It is with difficulty that she comprehends the dreamer's literary manner of speech, but unerringly she reads into his heart, unquote though she often dismisses his pained confessions with laughter that springs from her sunny and joy-expectant soul, she is not incapable of a depth of feeling and a heartfelt sympathy. She responds to our narrator's history with tears of tender concern, and she presses his hand, insistent that he must no longer live that way. The final thing that I want to strongly emphasize about Nastenka because I fear she will be misunderstood, and because I fear that the misunderstanding might undermine the story, is that I do not think she is being naive or foolish or desperate when she goes to the lodger to confess her love. I agree heartily with Macholsky when he says of her packing her belongings and pleading with the lodger to take her with him to Moscow, quote, she resolves upon such an action because she is in love and believes in his love." Unquote. We must not look at her declaration through a contemporary lens, and we must not indulge a skepticism about love at first sight. Relationships of the time were certainly not put through today's courtship rigors, and the whole story encourages in us something of Nastenka's outlook on life and belief in the sincerity of her love. I won't speak yet about the lodger's love, except to say that when he tells her he can be happy only with her, explains the impossibility of his circumstances, and promises to return, we are given no reason to mistrust him, other than the fact that we know that on that promised day he doesn't appear. The last of my posts was a quick word about that pin. I would love for someone to explain to me why I love so much that Nastenka is pinned to her grandmother's dress. I have theories, but I'm not quite sure why that detail of the story delights me so much. Perhaps it is because it gives the story the flavor of a fairy tale. Rapunzel had her hair, Rumpelstiltskin's maiden had her spinning wheel, Snow White's queen had her magic mirror, and Nastenka has that pin that binds her to her grandmother's dress. But also, 
It is such a dainty, benevolent form of captivity. She has not been locked in a tower, and she's not guarded by an ogre. Her grandmother is simply, though perhaps overzealously, concerned for her well-being. Nastenka loves her grandmother, defends her against a single unkind word, refuses to deceive her, aside from one harmless and amusing incident, and says of her that she is a kind old soul, who, in going to the opera, cared most to amuse Nastenka. There is something similarly innocent in her moment of mortification, so terrible she stood as if she had been shot, being nothing more than the mistake of abruptly standing up while still attached to her grandmother and pulling the chair behind her. Maybe I've answered my own question, but I feel like there could be more. Let me know if you have any thoughts about it. And we'll have lots more to talk about soon.